And welcome. This is the podcast of Tech EU and our third interview special episode recorded in Helsinki. I am Andre Degler, the host and producer of the show. This episode is kindly sponsored by Google Cloud for startups and is part of an exclusive interview series with prominent people in tech recorded live at Slush 2019. If you don't want to miss the rest of the interviews, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app. Today, I would like to share two conversations, uh, one recorded by myself and the other by my co-host, Natalie Novik. Our first guest is Marta Shogren, a partner at the VC firm NorthZone. Just a few days before the interview, NorthZone raised a 500 million US dollar fund. So we discussed this and more in this interview. But first, I asked my guest to introduce herself and explain what NorthZone is all about. Hi, my name is Marta and I'm a partner at North Zone. We are a uh, VC fund out of uh, Europe and the East Coast of the US. Right. So why is uh, this geographic focus? Yeah, so I mean, we started originally with a very strong Nordic legacy. We were originally started in Oslo. Right. We then, over the first 15 years of the fund, expanded only within the Nordics and were able to become one of the larger players here, being sort of involved in some of the the most prominent companies of, of this region, like Spotify, iZettle, Klarna, Trustpilot, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as we realized that the market in Europe was expanding and that really most of our competition was coming from London, we uh, expanded into London as well. And then because of certain vertical focus areas we have, like media and fintech, um, New York made a ton of sense from both helping our companies, like genuinely helping them expand in the U.S., but also for doing deals that we we know the verticals pretty well. So mm-hmm. that's that's kind of the the thinking. And there we we also believe that New York ha- is a lot more akin to Europe than it is akin okay. to the West Coast. How is it, how is that? Yeah. So I mean, the entrepreneurial ecosystem really started booming in the last decade, probably similar mm-hmm. to the ecosystem here in Europe. The ecosystem in terms of capital is also just forming. So it really has been forming in the last decade or maybe decade and a half. In terms of the talent, you're seeing sort of similar thing to what's happening in Europe in terms of like this second generation of talent coming out of, ex- mm-hmm. you know, experienced builders, operators that are now starting their companies. There's a lot of sort of cross learnings between the two. This is really interesting. And you have just uh, raised a new fund. Correct. Uh, can you talk more about this? Uh, how much, uh, from whom, uh, what do you want to do with this money? Yeah. So we just raised a $500 million fund. It was announced Monday of this week. Right. Um, the ambition is to continue backing strong-minded founders across a variety of verticals. We like to get involved pretty early. So we selectively write seed, post-seed tickets. But really, we focus on Series A and Series B. So the check sizes can go anywhere between a million euros and about 20 million euros. Mm-hmm. But really, the bread and butter is 3 to 15 million euro type of tickets. Interesting. So what about this selectively writing uh, seed checks? Uh, am I understanding correctly that it's happening more often than it used to with Series A uh, VCs? Yeah, I mean, look, when I started in this industry about a decade ago, we had basically two pockets before Series A. You had friends and family, uh, you had um, the seed, and then you had Series A, mm-hmm. right? And 
over the past five years, I'd say, we've gotten to a place where there's just so much more capital in the market that there's all these new sort of buckets of funding. I mean, even just yesterday at Slush, I learned about a new one called soil investing. Yeah, so I'm not really sure how it's defined, but basically as I see it, now there's this thing like pre-seed or soil, so to speak, and then pre-seed, seed, seed extension, seed plus, seed plus plus, mango seed, triple A seed, <laughs> pre-series A, seed. I, I, there's just so many of these terms now, which basically means, and we've done the math on this, over the past eight years, the amount of capital you've taken at the pre-series A stage has increased by a factor of five used to be taking, in Europe at least, right? Right. Used to be taking in about a million euros before you took in your Series A of about five to seven million euros. That was the, the standard. Nowadays, it's very rare that you take your Series A before you've taken about five million euros, right? And right. then your Series A, as a result, is no longer five to seven million. It's more like 10 to 15 to 20 million. It seems to be the case right now. And your Series Bs eight years ago used to be 10 to 15 million. Now, if, if you see a Series B below 20, 25 million, it, something's off. Right. So your ticket hasn't necessarily changed. It's just the name of the uh, round that has changed. It's Yeah, you know, the market is developing and we're just trying to do what we've been good at doing in the past 23 years and where we think we want to work in the future. But we're also conscious of the fact that competition is increasing and that we need to, in some cases, come in earlier than what normally we would do but also not to send the wrong signaling message, right? So we typically, when a big fund comes in with a tiny check, you're like, you know, how many of these are they going to write? You need to write like 200 checks <laughs> to, to right. deploy the fund. And that's absolutely not what we want to do. So what we do with seed is that we typically back serial entrepreneurs that are, you know, starting afresh. Uh, we collaborate a lot. We're very, very collaborative with other seed stage and pre-seed funds, as well as angels that we're close to. And, you know, what sets us apart also is that even at series A and B, we're extremely collaborative. We're very happy to co-lead and lead. And we have, I think, a reasonable amount of flexibility in terms of what we look for. So if you're writing a seed check, does it necessarily mean that most probably you're going to invest in the series A round as well? So what we changed with this fund is that we write these smaller ticket sizes of mm -hmm. around a million, maybe a little bit less than that as well. And then we can participate in the next round. And even if we don't lead it, we'll still participate because it's really important for founders to be able to, you know, raise their next round and not to have signaling issues. Mm -hmm. So we're very sort of founder aligned when it comes to that. And we're very, very clear when we say, you know, a lot of these companies are not going to graduate into our main portfolio where we deploy substantially larger tickets. But then even if they don't, we try to be helpful in terms of, well, whatever it is that they want to do going forward. Right. And uh, you mentioned uh, a certain vertical focus uh, points of uh, the fund. So what are they once again and why are they like this? Is it just a historical sort of thing or... No, so we're very much not dogmatic when it comes to our uh, vertical or thematic investments. What we've learned over the past eight funds and now deploying it into the ninth fund is that innovation kind of goes in cycles. And, you know, when we did Spotify, for example, that was a, a big wave of other consumer companies coming out, right? And we feel like certainly in Europe, the era of B2B is really kicking in. So we're going to spend a lot more time in productivity, whether that's on, on the automation side, the whole AI and ML side of things, or whether it's on the human augmentation side, as in augmenting productivity of, of humans. Uh, that's something we, we're really interested in. Then we have a fintech area uh, where we have both B2B and B2C. 
We've just done an investment in a company called WageStream, which is a really good sort of symbol of what we're looking to do, which is financial wellness, not to be deploying, you know, more sort of short-term loans or anything like that. And we're going to continue doing that as well. And then we have, of course, the direct-to-consumer portfolio. There will be more media, but slightly less than than in previous funds. Uh, But some emerging areas for us include mobility. We're an investor in tier, for instance. Mm -hmm. And then we have uh, healthcare, which which I think will be a a meaningful one for us going forward. And this is digital health. This is not life science. Right. So uh, you mentioned that you started in the Nordics. So you you are expert in uh, this particular region. How do you see it changing over the past decade that you've been in the business? So I originally actually covered the Nordics back at DN Capital, my the former fund I was with. And even back then, you know, there was a lot of bubbling entrepreneurial talent that was sort of. Uh, starting and then they would, you know, move to Berlin or somewhere else because the, the costs of living were so high or are so high here and there was um, less of an ecosystem. I would say that in the past decade in the Nordics, we've really sort of grown an ecosystem that seems to be here to stay. You know, I spent a lot of time talking to the folks that either are or have just left or similar, uh, iZettle, Klarna, Spotify and similar. And these are very experienced operators that want to do more in the ecosystem. So we're starting to have this nascent ecosystems of both experienced capital mm-hmm. as well as experienced builders, right? So that, of course, means that it attracts more capital. And then, you know, there, there is a booming sort of uh, uh, cluster of companies, which I think 10 years ago, you couldn't have you couldn't have named, you know, more than 10 deals that would happen in Series A across the Nordics. Nowadays, it's kind of difficult to keep up. We're, we're still working hard on making sure we have, you know, close to 100% coverage of the deals that, that happen in that range. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's becoming more difficult. How about uh, your general take on the state of the European VC, if you will? Over the past few weeks, we have seen already, I think, past $2 billion raised by different um, funds. What's going on? Well, I think, you know, the success that we've seen in Europe of capital deployed versus capital returned is finally starting to show some returns. Obviously, for Northzone, that has been around for 23 years. We've and raised nine funds. We couldn't have done that had we not had the returns. Right. But now there is, I think, more players that are able to demonstrate how, you know, returns can be made in various parts of Europe. And as a result, more capital is flocking over. I mean, this is the, with this fundraise, we had the most international interest we've, we've ever had from all over the place. And luckily, we have very loyal LPs. So we've, we've only taken in a handful of new uh, folks. Mm-hmm. But uh, it just goes to show that, you know, it, it's about performance. And I think Europe is finally starting to perform, which is great. And one opinion I have seen is that uh, we are expecting a lot more uh, money from the US uh, coming in. And these new funds also sort of a way to protect the European VCs uh, uh, from that invasion, if you will. Uh, do you think this is something that we should expect indeed? Look, I think the world is getting flatter, both in terms of where the talent is and where the capital goes, right? And we are starting to see U.S. funds both talk about partner feet on the ground expanding quite a bit, as well as hiring local folks on the ground. So I think it's great because it means that we can accelerate the ecosystems even more. At the same time, I'm pretty excited by kind of how Europe is rising up to the challenge, you know, with like the e-scooter companies, for example, it it was the the first time in my career that I had seen, what was it, over 200 million euros get deployed within six months time 
uh, to just support the local uh, contestants there. And, you know, talking to some uh, both current and former folks from, from the U.S. competitors, it's, it's quite interesting because they, didn't, they, they just didn't take it seriously in the beginning. And now they realize that the unit economics profitability of some of these players are just significantly better because they just know the market better. Right, so so I think it's it's exciting to see that Europe is both getting the attention, but is also starting to build its own sense of you know how do we increase ambition here, and how do we not just sell out early? And what do you think could be the other industries in which we can do as Euro Europeans as good as with e-scooters, let's say? Oh, um, I think that there is a ton to do in financial services. Um, obviously, there is the regulatory side of things in both financial services and healthcare, actually, is the other one that I think could be interesting and mm -hmm. possibly in the intersection of those, i.e. the insurance world. There are some interesting companies being developed there uh, that I think could be pan-European. Then there is the whole you know, marketplace side of things where just knowing the European market, you, you sort of know what will fly and what won't. And then I'm really excited about the, the whole the new wave of the B2B SaaS companies that for US players, like, you know, we have, for example, Personio in our portfolio, that's growing incredibly fast, scaling across Europe, because the there's no, you know, language is not really a barrier if you are European, because most of us speak a few languages, right? And then you know also yeah. where to find folks that can help you scale. So I think I'm really excited about seeing a new generation of SaaS companies being built around the European continent. And then maybe there is a US side to it as well, but as really an additional an additional factor. Right, understood. Marta, thank you so much for taking the time to talk and uh, good luck with uh, everything. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Happy slush. In the second part of today's episode, let us move from the VCs to entrepreneurs and listen to a conversation between Natalie Novik and Peter Reinhardt, the co-founder and CEO at the Unicorn Startup segment. Good morning. So, hi, Peter. Thank you so much for coming to visit us from San Francisco for Slush. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Segment and what we should all know about it? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, so, Segment is customer data infrastructure. So we help companies manage all of their first-party data. And I think what's been happening over the last decade is that people's data is becoming much more siloed. So rather than living in a bank branch manager's head, it's now distributed across an email tool, an analytics tool, uh, the website, the mobile app, push notifications, a teller, an ATM, and so on and so forth. So we're helping companies unify all of that uh, data about how their customers are interacting with them. And then we federate that data out to the massively expanding MarTech ecosystem of uh, 7,000 different tools. Yeah, and this is a really comprehensive product. I, I, I did some research on, on what you're building, and you really are integrating so many different data sources from across so many different platforms and putting them all together in a way that data managers can really understand and interpret the data really easily. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges that it requires to harness all of these different sources and put them together? Yeah, so I think the the interesting thing is that there's a lot of companies, say like MuleSoft or Zapier, who do an amazing job of integrating sort of workflows so they connect together. Like when someone does something in this application, trigger this other thing. Uh, we're a little different than that. So we focus specifically on customer data. And it turns out that customer data has this sort of simple underlying schema to it, which is who is the customer? So what's the identity that they refer to and what are their traits, demographic traits? And then two... Uh, what are they doing? 
uh, what actions are they taking? And with that underlying schema, then we're actually able to translate it, it turns out, into it's sort of a superset of the data required by any of these downstream tools, whether that's analytics or email marketing or push notifications or data warehousing, et cetera. And so uh, we sort of stumbled across that by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, we built a little uh, library for ourselves that could take data from our website and deliver it to three different analytics tools downstream. And we stumbled across this, this schema that turns out to be somewhat universal. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I think that's the sort of underlying secret to allowing us to connect so many different sources to so many different destinations. Yeah, and you've developed this feature called Personas. Yeah, so Personas basically takes this raw stream of data that's flowing through Segment, all of these identify calls and track calls about uh, what customers are doing, and rather than just a raw fire hose of data, we actually structure it as a, uh, we call it the 359-degree uh, customer record. So it's mm-hmm. imperfect, but it'll get you most of the way there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's the customer record. So it's you know, everything that has happened to that customer across or every interaction that they've had across all of these different customer touch points. And that profile, that record, then becomes something that a company can build on top of with really great marketing campaigns uh, become something that they could integrate into their support system. So they have a really great view uh, when they're giving support. It becomes something that they can uh, use to customize their actual application, their web app, their mobile app. And it, it's the sort of record that I think every company kind of wishes they had, but uh, is extremely difficult to, to pull together. Mm-hmm. And some of your, your clients are some of the world's biggest enterprise customers, but also lots and lots of startups. What, um, speaking directly about startups, what are some of the, the main challenges that you're finding how they approach their, their data? And what, and you have such a really comprehensive startup program. Can you talk a little bit about that and some of the solutions that you're offering? So startups are interesting. In the enterprise, you have so much data that you can do almost all of the analysis quantitatively. right? You can look at the numbers and you can say, okay, here's what's working, here's what's not. In startups, that's generally not the case in the sense that you may not have enough data to do anything meaningful or statistically significant from a quantitative perspective. And so what that means is that you need to look at more qualitative data. And that means looking at transcripts of live chat. It means uh, looking at support emails. It means uh, looking at the uh, heat mapping and flow for how actual visitor recordings of how people are moving through a product. And so these sort of really qualitative sources of information are really critical for startups to understand whether they have product market fit, how people are using their products, etc. So the startup program that uh, that we have is designed to help startups through the journey from qualitative pre-product market fit to quantitative post-product market fit growth stages. Uh, And the startup program basically offers uh, a huge uh, sort of gift of credits on the the segment platform, uh, as well as credits and sort of free usage of a whole bunch of our partner tools, whether that's email or heat mapping and, and so on and so forth. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a huge investment in, in helping startups uh, succeed. And uh, I think uh, Google has a, has a huge offering on, on there as well. And so the way that we like to help startups with this is my co-founder, Ilya, uh, does a lot of these uh, analytics for startups talks at accelerators all over the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we distribute this deal through the accelerators. Uh, and we're basically just trying to help startups understand how to, how to move along this journey. And, of mm-hmm. course, we can send data to all of these qualitative tools, and we can also send data to all these quantitative tools and sort of make that journey very seamless as they mm-hmm. turn on new tools inside Segment without having to totally replatform all their data as they grow. Right. And, and how are some of the ways that Segment is able to interpret and understand this qualitative data? Yeah, so let's take an example of uh, this uh, amazing nonprofit based in the U.S. called Upsolve. So Upsolve helps Americans file for bankruptcy. 
And uh, it's hugely important for helping people rise out of poverty. But very, very few people actually do file for bankruptcy because it's a very complicated legal process. And so at the very beginning of, of this year, actually, uh, they decided that they wanted to find a way to become a self-supporting nonprofit. And uh, they used Segment to turn on analytics tools, to turn on email marketing tools and so forth. And they built their entire MarTech stack. Uh, and sort of with some coaching around how to use these tools in their growth stack, they were actually able over the last year to basically get to a point where they are a self-sustaining nonprofit that is now lifting uh, thousands of Americans out of poverty and um, you know, over the next few years, hopefully, hopefully millions. So um, I think that, that's the sort of uh, company that we're trying to help build a really uh, great uh, growth stack and, and really figure out how to grow their business. Mm-hmm. So it really speaks to all the different kind of clientele that can be served by a segment's product. Yeah, I think everyone needs to understand their customers better. Everyone needs to put in place a, a, a world-class experience for those customers. And that, that requires having a customer record that's holistic and that you can build a, a great customer experience on top of. And speaking about customer experience, um, something um, that's really interesting and unique about Segment Story is kind of your process to product market fit and kind of how you develop your um, path to reaching those customers. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that journey and that process and some of the bumps along the way. Yeah, we failed pretty hard for the first year and a half. Um, we actually started as a classroom lecture tool and invested hundreds of thousands of lines of code, uh, raised 600K of seed money to go build and launch this uh, classroom tool where students could push a button to say, I'm confused, and the professor would see this graph over time of how confused the students were. And we deployed it into the classroom as the fall semester started, and it was just a total disaster. All the students were incredibly distracted by having their laptops out, went straight to Facebook and Flickr and Gmail. Um, this is a really tough moment for us because we had invested mm-hmm. so much and we like had this vision for how the world, how the classroom was going to become digital. And yeah. uh, turns out it wasn't a good idea. So then we struggled for a year to build an analytics product that turns out to be a very crowded space. Um, and eventually open sourced this library that we had built for ourselves that did this data routing uh, connectivity uh, thing that we now now offer. So we we had a very sort of circuitous path to discovering that that this was a, a really valuable product for people. And I think what we learned is that, uh, you know, our first two products were very much driven by our vision for how we thought the world should work. Mm-hmm. And it turns out the world really doesn't care, you know, what you think of in terms of how the world should work. Mm-hmm. And what we found with the third thing is that we had built this tool to solve our own problem. Mm-hmm. And it turned out it was a problem that a lot of people had. Mm-hmm. And so we've spent the last six years doubling down on solving that problem and uh, of connecting data from all these silos to all the downstream places. And helping people solve the data governance issues and so forth around that as well. And it turns out this is a huge problem that people have that, that we can solve. So I, I think, you know, for other founders out there who are trying to figure out uh, how to find a product market fit, I, I think it's really critical actually not to start from a vision for how the world should work, yeah. but instead start from a problem that people have that you can solve. Mm-hmm. So going kind of from this position of this is a problem we think that's out there, but then actually experiencing a problem in the course of building the company that you're like, you know, this is actually something that we're experiencing that we can actually solve. We're actually solving it through this product. That's exactly right. And if you look at the, the stories for how Slack or Dropbox or many of these other companies were founded, they were founded through solving an internal problem that then 
Turned out the rest of the world had the same problem. Right. So just kind of reinforcing this fact that the company process building is is not not a linear one always. Not at all. And it kind of what's it what's interesting about your story is you are an aerospace engineer coming into a B2B SaaS product. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the parallels and, and why the challenges in the B2B world and the SaaS world are so interesting and compelling for you? Yeah, so I uh, I was actually very deep into the math world in, in high school. I was like a you know, math lead and uh, at the very nerdy end of the spectrum there. And as I got to MIT, I decided, oh, I'm actually more interested in physics because this math stuff is getting a little abstract. And then I decided, yeah, physics is getting a little abstract. I think I'll switch to aerospace engineering. And by my junior year of, of MIT, I was feeling, you know, aerospace is getting a little, theori- little theoretical. It's like optimizing the last 1%. Mm-hmm. I'm really more interested in business. So I felt like I sort of sequentially failed out of uh, <laughs> uh, the, you know, philosophy, math, kind of uh, higher subjects. But my roommates were computer science majors, and we really liked working together. And uh, we were super excited to start a company together. Uh, and it, it, it turned out that we had ideas for uh, for building software products, and so that's that's where we went. Right, and uh, segment's been called kind of um, on the unicorn radar. They're thinking it's going to be the next billion dollar company. Um, really exciting um, promise um, in the future. A segment currently, you have customers in over seventy different countries, um, according to the last interview I saw. Um, we're here at Slush in Europe, thinking about the European consumer. What are some of the things that you find exciting about um, sales and, and the, the landscape in Europe? up in terms of coming and doing business here and and why is it important for you to be here and and be out in front with the product here in Europe? Well, we actually raised our Series D in in April, so we we are officially a unicorn now. But in in Europe, I think we're we're finding that we're expanding pretty quickly here. So we just made our 50th hire in in Dublin, uh, which is our European headquarters. Um, and I think there's, a, there's obviously a huge technology scene in, in Europe, and many of our customers by number are, are technology companies. Uh, and of course, the whole world is becoming uh, technology companies. But um, it turns out we have a lot of customers here in the Nordics, obviously an enormous tech scene and incredible, given the population, massive density of, <laughs> of technology companies. So uh, super excited to be uh, spending more time in, in Europe and in the Nordics in particular. Mm-hmm. And what are you most excited about um, to see at Slush? Uh, I think there's a really impressive array, actually, of hardware companies up here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm wearing the, the Aura Ring, uh, and uh, I saw they have, they have a booth as well. But mm-hmm. uh, it's just amazing. I, th- I think maybe born out of Nokia and Ericsson and some of these um, longstanding, super successful Nordic companies, there's a really amazing hardware presence up here that uh, is, is pretty unique. So I'm excited to see that. Great. And kind of thinking about your journey as a founder, as we talked earlier, it's not always a linear and there's some failures and bumps in the road and things that you plan might not necessarily pan out, but kind of always finding your way. Um, if you had to kind of give back of some advice for founders that might be at the start of the journey or that they're right at that kind of challenging, critical point, um, what would you um, share with them um, to keep them um, inspired? I think there were two very tactical things that were true for us that it may be replicable. So one was that the founding team, we were, we were deep friends. Uh, we had been roommates for a while. Uh, we Actually, Calvin and I had known each other since seventh grade. So I think starting a company with friends can be a double-edged sword, but as long as you are committed to remaining friends mm-hmm. and, and, and working through whatever issues come up as you start a company, I think it can be a, a huge element that holds the company together through tough times. Uh, the second is, and this is very tactical, we always invested in the early days in an office slash apartment mm-hmm. that was slightly nicer than seemed totally justified mm-hmm. with the idea that we would then just want to be there. 
So when we were living in San Francisco, we had an apartment on Russian Hill that uh, looked out over Alcatraz and, and sort of the bay. And that was a beautiful place to be. Like you didn't really want to leave mm-hmm. on like an incremental day by day basis. And I, I think that's important if you really want to feel like every day you can come in and put your best work down to, mm-hmm. to build the company. Mm-hmm. So kind of cultivating a great environment um, and also great co-founding team um, to work with. Thinking about your European plans uh, based in Dublin, is there anything on the horizon we should be looking out for? Any new hires that coming up or what should we be looking for? Well, we're still hiring super aggressively in Dublin and in London as well. So both of our our, our sales and customer support and and, uh, customer success teams are all growing uh, quite a lot uh, in in, in Europe overall uh, over the next year. And uh, super excited to, to serve more of the, the customers that need great customer data infrastructure uh, here in Europe. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for coming um, and speaking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Great. And this is it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andre at TechEU or Natalie at TechEU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day and talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Oh, 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 oh,